Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 16 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 1, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Eleonora of Aquitaine, Chapter 1, Part 2. The Christmas festivities were celebrated that year with great pomp at Westminster Palace, but directly the coronation was over, the king conducted his queen to the Palace of Bermondsey, where, after remaining some weeks in retirement, she gave birth to her second son, the last day of February, 1155. Bermondsey, the first place of Eleonora's residence in England, was, as delineated in its ancient plans, a pastoral village, nearly opposite to London, of a character decidedly Flemish. Rich in well-cultivated gardens and wealthy velvet meads, it possessed, likewise an ancient Saxon palace, and a priory then newly built. Assuredly the metropolis must have presented itself to the view of its foreign queen, from the palace of Bermondsey, with much more picturesque grandeur than it does at present, when its unwieldy size and smoky atmosphere prevent an entire coup d'oeil. But at one glance from the opposite bank of the river, the eyes of the fair Provençal could then behold London, her royal city, situated on rising ground from the Thames. It was at that time girdled with an embattled wall, which was studded with gateways, both by water and land. The new tower of London kept guard on the eastern extremity of the city, and the lofty spire of the ancient cathedral presided over the western side, just behind the antique gateway of Ludgate. This gate led to the pleasant road of the river Strand, ornamented with the old temple, its fair gardens and wharf, and interspersed with a few inns, or metropolitan dwellings of the nobility, the cultivated grounds of which sloped down to their water stairs and boat houses, the Thames being then the highway of London. The Strand Road terminated in the majestic palace and abbey of Westminster. The old palace, with its yard and gardens, once belonging to St. Edward, and the new palace, its noble hall and water stairs, which owed their origin to the Norman dynasty. Such was the metropolis when Henry II succeeded to the English crown. If the example and conduct of the first Provençal queen was neither edifying nor pleasing to her subjects, yet in a commercial point of view, the connection of the merchants of England with her Aquitanian dominions was highly advantageous. The wine trade with Bordeaux became considerable. In a few months after the ascension of Eleonora as queen consort of England, Large fortunes were made by the London traders, who imported the wines of Gascony from the port of Bordeaux, 
and above all, by the example of the maritime cities of Guienne, the shipping of England was governed by the ancient code of laws, called the Code of Oleron. In compliment to his consort Eleonora, Henry II adopted for his plate mark the cross of Aquitaine, with the addition of his initial letter H. An instance of this curious fact is still to be seen in the grace cup of Thomas a Becket. The English chose to regard Henry II solely as the descendant of their ancient Saxon line. Thou art son, said they, to the most glorious empress Matilda, whose mother Matilda Atheling, daughter to Margaret, saint and queen, whose father was Edward, son to King Edmund Ironside, who was grandson to King Alfred. Such were the expressions of the English, when Henry convened a great meeting of the nobility and chief people, at Wallingford, in March 1155, where, by the advice of his mother, the Empress Matilda, who had learned wisdom from adversity, he swore to confirm to the English laws of Alfred and Edward the Confessor, as set forth in the great charter of Henry I. At this great convocation, Queen Eleonora appeared, with her eldest son, then in his fourth year, and the infant Henry. The baronage of England kissed the hands of the infants, and vowed to recognize them as the heirs of the English monarchy. A few weeks after this recognition, the queen lost her eldest son, who was buried at Reading, at the feet of his great-grandfather, Henry I. The principal residences of the court were Winchester Palace, Westminster Palace, and the country palace of Woodstock. The amusements favored by Queen Eleonora were of a dramatic kind. Besides the mysteries and miracles played by the parish clerks and students of divinity, the classic taste of the accomplished Eleonora patronized representations nearly allied to the regular drama, since we find that Peter of Blois, in his epistles, congratulates his brother William on his tragedy of Flora and Marcus, played before the queen. This William was an abbot, but was master of the revels and amusements at court. He composed all the mysteries and miracles performed before the queen, at Westminster and Winchester. It is to Peter of Blois we owe a graphic description of King Henry's person and manners, likewise the picture of his court setting out in progress. When King Henry sets out of a morning, you see multitudes of people running up and down as if they were distracted, horses running against horses, carriages overturning carriages, players, gamesters, cooks, confectioners, morris dancers, barbers, courtesans, and parasites, making so much noise, and in a word, such an intolerable tumultuous jumble of horse and foot, that you imagine the great abyss hath opened, and that hell hath poured forth all its inhabitants. We think that this disorderly crew must have belonged to the queen's court, for the sketch given us by the same most amusing author, of King Henry himself, would lead us to suppose that he countenanced no such riotous doings. The chaplain Peter thus minutely describes King Henry, the husband of Eleonora of Aquitaine, in his letter to the Archbishop of Panormitan. In praising David the king, it is read that he was ruddy, but you must understand that my lord the king is sub-rufus, or pale red. His harness, armor, hath somewhat changed his color. Of middle stature he is, so that among little men seemeth he not much, nor among long men seemeth he over little. His head is round, as in token of great wit, and of special high consul the treasury. 
our readers would scarcely expect phrenological observations in an epistle of the twelfth century but we faithfully write what we find therein his head is of such a quality that to the neck and to all the body it accordeth by even proportion his een pickled fine and clear as to color while he is of pleased will but through disturbance of heart like sparkling fire or lightning with hastiness his head of curly hair wind clipped square to the forehead showeth lioness visage the nostrils even and comely according to all the other features high vaulted feet legs able to riding broad bust and long champion arms which telleth him to be strong light and hardy in a toe of his foot the nail groweth into the flesh and in harm to the foot over waxeth his hands through their greatness showeth negligence for he utterly leaveth the keeping of them never but when he beareth hawk weareth he gloves each day at mass and council and other open needs of the realm throughout the whole morning he standeth afoot and yet when he eateth he never sitteth down in one day he will if need be ride two or three journeys and thus hath he oft circumvented the plots of his enemies a huge lover of woods is he so that when he seetheth of war he haunteth places of hawking and hunting he useth boots without folding caps and homely and short clothes weareth he his flesh would have charged him with fatness but with travel and fasting he adaunteth keeps it down and in riding and going travaileth he mightily his youth not as other kings lieth he in his palace but travelling about by his provinces espieth he the doings of all men he doometh those that he judges when they do wrong and punisheth them by stronger judgment than other men no man more wise in counsel nay more dreadful in prosperity nay steadfaster in adversity when once he loveth scarcely will he ever hate when once he hateth scarcely ever receiveth him into grace oft holdeth he in hand swords bows and hunting gear excepting he be at council or at book when he may rest from worldly business privily he occupieth himself about learning and reading and among his clerks asketh he questions for though your king be well ye lettered learned our king by far is more ye lettered i forsooth in science of letters know the cunning of them both ye wotting well that my lord the king of sicily a whole year was my disciple and though by you he had the beginning of teaching yet by me he had the benefit of a more full science and as soon as i went out of sicily your king cast away his books and gave himself up to palatine idleness but forsooth our lord the king of england has each day a school for right well lettered men hence his conversation that he hath with them is busy discussing of question none is more honest than our king in speaking nay in alms largest therefore as holy writ saith we may say of him his name is a precious ointment and the alms of him all the church shall take such is the picture of the first of our great plantagenet monarchs drawn in minute pencilling by the man who had known him from his childhood it is not a very easy task to reduce to anything like perspicuity the various traditions which float through the chronicles regarding queen eleanora's unfortunate rival the celebrated rosamond clifford 
no one who studies history ought to despise tradition for we shall find that tradition is generally founded on fact even when defective or regardless of chronology the learned and accurate carte has not thought it beneath him to examine carefully the testimony that exists regarding rosamond and we find from him that we must confine her connection with henry to the two years succeeding his marriage he has proved that the birth of her youngest son and her profession as a nun at godstow took place within that space of time and he has proved it from the irrefragable witness of existing charters of endowments of land given by the clifford family to benefit the convent of godstow of provision made by henry the second for her son william long Espy, and his brother and of benefactions he bestowed on the nunnery of godstow because rosamond had become a votaress therein it appears that the acquaintance between rosamond and henry commenced in early youth about the time of his knighthood by his uncle the king of scotland that it was renewed at the time of his successful invasion of england when he entered privately into marriage contract with the unsuspecting girl and before he left england to return to his wife his noble boy william surnamed long Espy, was born his own words afterwards confirm this report thou art my legitimate son said he to one of the sons of rosamond who met him at the head of an armed force at a time when the rebellion of the princes had distressed him and he continued the rest are bastards perhaps these words afford the truest explanation of the mysterious dissensions which perpetually distracted the royal family how king henry excused his perjury both to rosamond and the queen is not explained by chronicle he seems to have endeavored by futile expedients to keep them both in ignorance of his perfidy as rosamond was retained by him as a prisoner though not an unwilling one it was easy to conceal from her the facts that he had wedded a queen and brought her to england but his chief difficulty was to conceal rosamond's existence from eleonora and yet to indulge himself with frequent visits to the real object of his love brompton says that one day queen eleonora saw the king walking in the pleasance of woodstock at the end of a ball of floss silk attached to his spur coming near him unperceived she took up the ball and the king walking on the silk unwound and thus the queen traced him to a thicket in the labyrinth or maze of the park where he disappeared she kept the matter secret often revolving in her own mind in what company he could meet with the balls of silk soon after the king left woodstock for a distant journey then queen eleonora bearing this discovery in mind searched the thicket in the park and discovered a low door cunningly concealed this door she had forced and found that it was the entrance to a winding subterranean path which led out at a distance to a sylvan lodge in the most retired part of the adjacent forest here the queen found in a bower a young lady of incomparable beauty busily engaged in embroidery queen eleonora then easily guessed how balls of silk attached themselves to king henry's spurs whatever was the result of the interview between eleonora and rosamond it is certain that the queen did not destroy her rival either by sword or poison though in her rage it is possible that she might threaten both that rosamond was not killed may be ascertained by the charters before named which plainly show that she lived twenty years in great penitence after her retirement from the king 
it is extremely probable that her interview with eleanora led to her first knowledge that henry was a married man and consequently to her profession at godstow which took place the second year of henry's reign the grand error in the statements regarding rosamond is the assertion that she was a young girl seduced and concealed by the king when he was in advanced life now the charters collated by carte prove that the acquaintance of rosamond and henry commenced in early youth that they were nearly the same age and that their connection terminated soon after queen eleanora came to england twenty years afterwards when rosamond's death really occurred in her convent it happened to coincide with eleanora's imprisonment and disgrace this coincidence revived the memory of the romantic incidents connected with henry's love for rosamond clifford the high rank of the real object of the queen's jealousy at that time and the circumstances of horror regarding henry's profligacy as the seducer of his son's wife occasioned a mystery at court which no one dared to define the common people in their endeavors to guess the state secret combined the death of the poor penitent at godstow with eleanora's imprisonment and thus the report was raised that eleanora had killed rosamond to these causes we trace the disarrangement of the chronology in the story of rosamond which has cast doubts on the truth of her adventures in brompton's narrative we find the labyrinth at woodstock and the clue of silk famous in the romance and ballad his chronology of the incidents is decidedly wrong but the actual events are confirmed by the most ancient authorities queen eleanora brought her husband a princess in the year eleven fifty six this was the eldest daughter the princess matilda the next year the queen spent in england her celebrated son richard coeur de leon was born september eleven fifty seven at a palace considered one of the finest of the kingdom called the beaumont in oxford thus that renowned university claims the honor of being the birthplace of this great warrior this palace was afterwards turned into the white friars church and then to a workhouse the chamber in which richard was born still remains a roofless ruin with some vestiges of a fireplace but such as it is this fragment is deeply interesting to the english as the birthplace of a hero of whom they are proud eleanora of aquitaine in some passages of her life appears as one of the most prominent characters of her age she was actively employed either as sovereign of her own dominions or regent of normandy during the period from eleven fifty seven to eleven seventy two eleanora was crowned a second time at worcester with the king in eleven fifty nine when the royal pair came to the oblation they both took off their crowns and laying them on the altar vowed never to wear them more a son was born to henry and eleanora september twenty third after the worcester coronation this prince bore the name of the king's father geoffrey plantagenet the same year the king betrothed this son to constance the heiress of conan duke of bretagne this infant constance was about eighteen months older than the little prince geoffrey henry had made most unjust seizure of bretagne by way of conquest he however soothed the independent bretons by marrying their infant duchess to his son his ambitious thirst for extension of empire was not sated by the acquisition of this dukedom he immediately laid siege to Toulouse, and in the name of queen eleanora claimed the sovereignty of earl raymond who was in possession 
and the ally of the king of france a year was occupied with skirmishing and negotiation during which time eleanora acted as queen regent of england henry sent for his queen to normandy in eleven sixty she went in great state taking with her prince henry and her eldest daughter to meet their father the occasion of her presence being required was the marriage of marguerite the daughter of her former husband louis the seventh by his second wife with her young son henry chancellor becket went with a magnificent retinue to paris and brought the little bride aged three years to the queen at rouen both bride and bridegroom were given after their marriage to becket for education and this extraordinary person inspired in their young bosoms an attachment to him that ended but with their lives queen eleanora kept her christmas at mons with the king in great state and splendor the year of this betrothment after a sharp dispute between henry the second and louis the seventh relative to the portion of the princess marguerite the king of france compromised the matter by giving the city of Gisors as a portion with another infant princess of france named alice in eleven sixty two this child was in her third year when wedded to prince richard who was then seven years old this princess was unfortunately consigned to the king of england for education two marriages were thus contracted between the daughters of louis the seventh and the sons of his divorced queen connections which must seem most extraordinary when we consider that the father of the brides and the mother of the bridegrooms had been married and were parents of children who were sisters to both louis the seventh gave his eldest daughter by queen eleanora in marriage to henry the large count of champagne it was in this year that king henry's troubles began with thomas a becket who had hitherto been his favorite his friend and prime minister the contest between the king and becket which fills so many folio pages of modern history must be briefly glanced at here it was the same quarrel which agitated england between henry i and anselm but england no longer possessed a virtuous daughter of her royal race for a queen who keenly feeling the cry of the poor deprived of their lawful provision mediated between these haughty spirits the gay luxurious daughter of the south was occupied with her own pleasures and heeded not the miseries which the king's sequestrations of benefices brought on the destitute part of the population becket appealed to the empress matilda the king's mother who haughtily repulsed his suit becket was the son of a london citizen who had followed edgar etheling on his crusading expedition and was made prisoner in syria he obtained his liberty through the affection of a Syrian lady, an emir's daughter, who followed her lover after his departure, and succeeded in finding him in London, although she knew but two European words, London and Gilbert, the place of abode, and Christian name of her lover. The pagan maiden was baptized by the favorite Norman name of Matilda, and from this romantic union sprang Thomas a Becket, who was remarkable for his learning and brilliant talents, and his fine stature and beauty. The love which Gilbert Becket bore to the race and blood of Alfred, which had sent him crusading with Prince Edgar, rendered him the firm partisan of his niece, the Empress Matilda. Young Becket had taken the only road to distinction open to an Anglo-Saxon, yet he was of the church, but not in it, for he was neither priest nor monk, being rather a church lawyer than a clergyman. 
Henry II had distinguished this Anglo-Saxon, with peculiar favor, to the indignation of his wife and mother, who warned him against feeling friendship for an Anglo-Saxon serf, with the loathing that the daughters of Rajas might feel for a pariah. The see of Canterbury having remained vacant a year and a half, Henry urged his favorite to accept it, in hopes that he would connive at his plans, of diverting the revenues of the church, to enrich those of the crown, for this was simply the whole cause of the perpetual contest, between the Anglo-Norman kings and the archbishops of Canterbury, since the conquest. But as the church supported the destitute poor, it is not difficult to decide which had the moral right. Archdeacon Becket protested that, if he were once a bishop, he must uphold the rights of the church. But the king still insisted on investing him with the archbishopric. The night before his consecration, at supper, he told the king that this archbishopric would place an eternal barrier between their friendship. Henry would not believe it. Becket was consecrated a priest one day, and was invested as archbishop of Canterbury the next. To the annoyance of the king, he instantly resigned his chancellorship, and became a firm champion for the rights of his see. For seven years the contest between Becket and Henry continued, during which time we have several events to note, and to conclude the history of the Empress Matilda. She was left regent of Normandy by her son, which country she governed with great wisdom, and kept in a peaceful state, but she never returned to England. In the year 1165, King Louis the Seventh gave the Princess Alice, his youngest daughter, by Queen Eleonora, in marriage to the Count of Blois, but, at the same time, endowed him with the office of High Seneschal of France, which was the feudal right to Henry II as Count of Anjou. Henry violently resented this disposal of his office, and the Empress, his mother, who foresaw the rising storm, and who had been thoroughly satiated with the horrors of war in her youth, wrote to Pope Alexander, begging him to meet her, to mediate between the angry kings. The Pope obeyed the summons of the royal matron, and the kings met Matilda, and the pontiff at Gisors. The differences between Becket and Henry II had then risen to a fearful height. It appears that Matilda was charged by the Pope with a commission of peacemaking between Becket and his royal master. Emboldened by the mandate of the Pope, Becket once more referred to the Empress Matilda as the mediator between the church and her son, and no more met with repulse. We have seen the disgust with which Matilda recoiled from any communication with Becket as the son of a Saxon villain. Nevertheless, this great man, by means of his eloquent epistles, was beginning to exercise the same dominion over the mind of the haughty empress that he did over every living creature with whom he communicated. Henry II, alarmed at his progress, sent to his mother a priest named John of Oxford, who was charged to inform her of many particulars derogatory to Becket's moral character, events that probably happened during his gay and magnificent career as Chancellor and Archdeacon. The death of the Duke of Bretagne had called Henry II to take possession of that duchy in the name of the infant Duchess Constance and her betrothed lord, his son Geoffrey, when the news arrived of the death of the Empress Matilda, which occurred September 10, 1167. The mother of Henry II was deeply regretted in Normandy, where she was called the Lady of the English. 
she governed Normandy with discretion and moderation, applying her revenues wholly to the benefit of the common weal and many public works. Her partiality for bridge-building is the only point of resemblance between her actions and those of her mother. When regent of Normandy, she applied her private revenues to building the magnificent stone bridge of thirteen arches over the Seine, called Le Grand Pont. The construction of this bridge was one of the wonders of the age, being built with curved piers, to humor the rapid current of the river. The empress built and endowed three monasteries, among these was the magnificent structure of St. Alwyn. She resided chiefly at the palace of Rouen, with occasional visits to the Abbey of Beck. Matilda was interred, with royal honors, in the Abbey of Beck, before the altar of the Virgin. Her son left his critical affairs in Britagne to attend her funeral. He raised a stately marble tomb to her memory. Upon it was the following epitaph, whose climax tends rather to advance the glory of the surviving son than the defunct mother. Great born, great married, greater brought to bed, here's Henry's daughter, wife, and mother's laid. Here her body remained until the year 1282, when the abbey church of Beck being rebuilt, the workmen discovered it, wrapped up in an oxhide. The coffin was taken up, and, with great solemnity, reinterred in the middle of the chancel, before the high altar. The ancient tomb was removed to the same place, and, with the attention the Church of Rome ever showed to the memory of a foundress, erected over the new grave. This structure falling to decay, in the seventeenth century, its place was supplied by a fine monument of brass, with a pompous inscription. The character of this celebrated ancestress of our royal line was as much revered by the Normans as disliked by the English. Besides Henry II, she was the mother of two sons, Geoffrey and William, who both preceded her to the grave. Queen Eleonora was resident, during these events, at the palace of Woodstock, where Prince John was born, in the year 1166. Henry completed the noble hall of the palace of Rouen, begun by Henry I, and nearly finished by the Empress Matilda. He sent for Queen Eleonora, from England, to bring her daughter, the Princess Matilda, that she might be married to her affianced lord, Henry the Lion, Duke of Saxony. The nuptial feast was celebrated in the newly finished hall of Rouen Palace, first opened for its stately banquet, 1167. Queen Eleonora was left regent of Normandy by her royal lord, but the people, discontent at the loss of the Empress Matilda, rebelled against her authority, which insurrection obliged Henry to come to the aid of his wife. Guienne and Poitou became in a state of revolt soon after. The people, who earnestly desired Eleonora, their native princess, to govern them, would not be pacified till Henry brought his queen and left her at Bordeaux with her son Richard. Henry, the heir of England, was entitled the Duke of Guienne. But for Eleonora's favorite son, Richard, was intended the county of Poitou, subject to vassalage to his brother and father. This arrangement quieted the discontents of Aquitaine. The Princess Marguerite, the young wife of Prince Henry, was left in Guienne with her mother-in-law, while Henry II and his heir proceeded to England, then convulsed with the disputes between church and state, carried on by Becket. Queen Eleonora and Prince Richard remained at Bordeaux, to the satisfaction of the people of the South, who were delighted with the presence of their reigning family, 
although the Norman deputies of King Henry still continued to exercise all the real power of the government. The heart of Henry's son and heir still yearned to his old tutor, Becket, an affection which the king beheld with jealousy. In order to wean his son from this attachment, in which the young princess Marguerite fully shared, Henry II resolved, in imitation of the Capetian royal family, to have his son crowned king at Westminster Abbey, and to associate him in the government. Be glad, my son, said Henry II to his son, at this coronation, when he set the first dish on the table at the coronation banquet. There is no prince in Europe has such a sewer at his table. No great condescension for the son of an earl to wait on the son of a king, replied the young prince, aside to the earl of Leicester. The princess Marguerite was not crowned at the same time with her husband. She remained in Aquitaine with her mother-in-law, Queen Eleonora. Her father, the king of France, was enraged at this slight offered to his daughter, and flew to arms to avenge the affront. Yet it was no fault of King Henry, who had made every preparation for the coronation of the princess, even to ordering her royal robes to be in readiness. But when Marguerite found that Becket, the guardian of her youth, was not to crown her, she perversely refused to share the coronation of her husband. The character of Henry II, during the long strife that subsisted between him and his former friend, had changed from the calm heroism portrayed by Peter of Blois. He had given way to fits of violence, agonizing to himself and dangerous to his health. It was said that when any tidings came of the contradiction of his will by Becket, he would tear his hair and roll on the ground with rage, grasping hands full of rushes in the paradoxums of his passion. It was soon after one of these frenzies of rage that, in 1170, he fell ill at Domfront in Maine. He then made his will, believing his end approaching. To his son Henry he left England, Normandy, Maine, and Anjou. To Richard he left the Aquitanian dominions. Geoffrey had Bretagne, in right of his wife, while John was left dependent on his brothers. From this order of affairs, John obtained the nickname Lackland, first given him by Henry himself, in jest after his recovery. During a fit of penitence, when he thought himself near death, Henry sought reconciliation with Becket, but when fresh contradictions arose between the archbishop and the king, in one of those violent accessions of fury described above, Henry unfortunately demanded in his rage, before the knights who attended in his bedchamber, whither no man loved him enough to revenge the affronts he perpetually received from an insolent priest. On this hint, Fitzurse, Tracy, Britton, and Morville slaughtered Becket before the altar in his cathedral the last day of the year, 1171. End of section 16. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.